I'm Jason Harmon, and this is API Intersection, where you'll get insights from experienced API practitioners to learn best practices on things like API design, governance, identity auth, versioning, and more. Welcome back to API Intersection Podcast. Got an old pal and a regular coworker here joining me today. We got Anna co-hosting again. Anna, give us a quick quip about yourself here. Oh, I don't know that I could be that fast and exciting today, but I'm Anna Doherty. I am the product marketing manager at Stoplight, and uh, I'm excited to be here again. Awesome. And I always forget to mention I'm Jason Harmon, CTO at Stoplight. So our guest today is Keith Casey. Keith and I have known each other for maybe a decade or something in the Austin area, working together on like the API meetup. But Keith's got quite a story, you know, dating back to early Twilio days and things like that. And I think the trigger for bringing Keith on here was a recent piece he did around API adoption. So that's, I think, where we're going to kind of dive into today is what that looks like in reality versus imagination. So, Mr. Casey, tell us about yourself and uh, we'll get into it. Hey, everybody. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, looking forward to this. Yeah, so Jason and I go back, I think it is about a decade. Let's see, I think you're at Shipping Company. And I was at a little company called Twilio. And I, I call it a little company because I was employee number 20, 25 or so over there way back in the day. I was the first evangelist not on a coast, which is a kind of a weird distinction. But it turns out there's a lot of space in between those coasts. So I was covering a lot of that. Let's see. So I was there about two and a half years. I was number 2025 up through about 250 when I left. Jump ship there to join a, an Austin tech company, APIs, making audio and video searchable. That crashed and burned. So I know a little bit about API adoption and how to not get API adoption. But it was really interesting what you guys are doing and more importantly, a cool space to drink in. So I appreciated that. You're welcome. It was a blast. Uh, I think it was a little too early in the market. But after that, I went to another company called Okta, does single sign-on identity management. I was there for about five years, ran go-to-market, product marketing, that sort of thing for the customer identity product, API security product for kind of reshaped how we are looking at the customer identity market and really did that from the ground up. And since I left there early 2021, um, been consulting with API companies or, or figuring out how to help them become API companies, really going from the very, very early bare bones, here's what an API is, here's how to design and build it, all the way to, okay, cool, we've got an API. Now, how do we get people to use it? And helping people figure that out. And so the blog post that, that Jace is talking about was a thing where I, I track through what that adoption looks like over time. So you say API companies and becoming an API company. What's the difference between a company and an API company? Yeah, so uh, a lot of companies start with, they start with their existing product suite. They start building things out. And those are, those are great. Salesforce is actually an early, early example of that. They built a CRM. Okay, great. At some point they go, well, you know what, if we can plug this into other things, that's even better. So then they start adding APIs on top of it. You know, we, we all know that story, but that that's one mindset. The other extreme is the Twilio's where there is no product except the API. So they build from day one with how do we make sure that people can plug it, this into absolutely anything. So I worked with a lot of companies on both sides of that in the last few months, trying to help people figure out, okay, of the products we have, what's suitable for APIs, what should be our priorities? And on the flip side of, as we're building out APIs from the ground up, how do we make sure that the capabilities that we're putting in here are actually useful, things that our people, our customers, our partners actually want to use? 
One thing I find is that a lot of people look to these sort of what I think of as like a commoditized space like Twilio, where it's like you've got this uh, easy unit economics that, that port to APIs and connectivity well. And people always want to think about it that way. And it doesn't always work that way. In fact, I'd say, say that's the exception. But the one thing that's true across all of them is that I think the best starting point, if you don't know how to measure your API success, is just look at adoption and you'll figure out the rest. Curious to get your thought. Well, yeah, but even adoption is adoption is a super hard thing to define. Like Twilio coming into the Twilio building their API early on, the space they were competing in was SMS aggregators. If you're not familiar with an SMS aggregator, it used to be before you could send a text message in the before Twilio times, is you had to sign deals with these aggregators that they would take all this API traffic or all this not even API traffic, they would take all this binary traffic in, aggregate it together, and then pipe it off to the carriers. If you wanted to do that, it usually cost upwards of 10 cents a message, $1,000 a month for a short code, like a four or five digit code, and they would cost $10,000 just to get started. And I worked for an SMS aggregator way back in the day. I built the voting system for American Idol season, season six, seven, and eight. So I, I lived and breathed that space. So the first time I found Twilio, and it was zero to get started instead of $10,000 a month or $10,000. It was a dollar per number per month versus 10 or versus a thousand dollars a month. And it was one cent a message versus 10 cents a message. I'm like, Oh crap, you're going to win. Like you're going to win and you're going to win big and you're going to blow all these other guys out of the water. So I started watching Twilio at that point, but you're, you're right. Most people don't have a very clean transactional model like that. You know, with a Twilio, you're sending a message, you're making a phone call. With a SendGrid, you're sending an email. Salesforce, though, it's way more abstract of, am I when I query a customer record, is that valuable? Should I charge based on that? And those things are a lot harder to figure out. And I think the big business problem that most people are having with APIs and adoption and everything is lining up their interest with the customer's interest. Like at, at Twilio, our whole mindset was, look, if you're sending text messages, that means you're being successful. You're, you're shipping product, you're interacting with customers, whatever. So tying us getting paid to you having a successful customer was really easy. When you've got these more abstract use cases, it gets way harder. So you start getting into number of transactions per month or just a monthly fee or something like that. And that's way harder to figure out. So adoption ends up being really, it is the easiest thing and it is the hardest thing all at once. Yeah, we dealt with this a lot in the kind of early days of Typeform too when I was there. It was like, well, if we have an API, is that a thing we should charge for? But when we broke it down, it was like the use cases that people wanted in, in the APIs actually fed the same kind of growth levers or, or kind of priced elements that you would do in the UX. They were just looking to automate it with other platforms. So it made no sense to charge for it because it was already implicitly charged for, right? But you got to think through those things. And to your point, like, resolve the connectivity back to what what is the actual business model that you're doing and does the api represent some addendum to that or is it simply amplifying it but i, I think in either case let's say you know you're you're doing a you know mapping or texting or these things that are just so well defined sure easy enough to figure out or maybe you're doing the more intricate scenario i think either way to your point adoption can be tricky to measure depending on how complex the underlying stuff is, but it's a great place to start because if you don't know if people are using the API, nothing else really matters, right? Yeah, and at bare bones, the easiest scenario to, to track is, are people making API calls? 
Because if they're not making API calls, really nothing else matters. You, you've built a cool toy. You haven't necessarily built a product. And I guess the difference in your mind between, because, you know, I would say like there's a measurement anti-pattern of just measuring API calls, right? That's generally not a good way to run your business unless, you know, as you said, it maps perfectly per operation. But like measuring calls versus adoption as we're referring to it, like what's the delta there? I always throw out counting API calls is the baseline. Starting there is an okay spot. It's not great. It's not going to lead to probably the growth and the patterns you want because it'll start creating scenarios where, you know, when you request a page of results back, then if we're counting by API calls, then you'll make sure that every, every request after that is one record at a time. And it, you end up with these really weird, bizarre anti-patterns as a result of that. So yeah, that's that's the baseline. That's usually not where we want to be. Usually I want to map things back to, are we solving real concrete customer problems? So this is where I put on my, my product marketing hat. And I, I say, okay, of the things that this customer is coming to us to do, are we solving their problems? Are we solving them successfully, smoothly, consistently, quickly? to make sure that they're getting as much value as, as possible. And to flip this back to design for a second, this is one of the places where I always tell people, and I, I have this conversation once a week almost, we are the experts at our API. We are the experts in our domain. We need to act like it. When there's a choice to take on that heavy lifting and we say, okay, should we put this heavy lifting on the customer or on us? We have to acknowledge that the people using our API are probably not using it 40 hours a week, 50 weeks a year. That's us. We're the ones doing that. We're the experts. We know all the terminology and everything. We should take on that heavy lifting and let them get started as quickly and easily as possible so they can move on to something else. At Okta, I coined the phrase, uh, developers have exactly two goals in life. Build something useful and go home. And that's it. Anything we can do to accelerate one of those things, we should absolutely do. Anything we're doing that prevents or slows down one of those things, we should stop it immediately. And when we think about building something useful, we need to think about, is this valuable to do? Is it easy to get started? Is it productive? Is it, are the docs correct? Are the examples useful? Those sorts of things. And in terms of going home, we want to make sure people can stay home. So are things stable? Are they reliable? Are they going to get calls at two in the morning? Are they going to get called by the CEO saying, hey, I'm doing this demo, Jason, and this isn't working. What the crap? <laughs> Those are the last things we want. How are you measuring these things? Like, how are you getting in touch with customers and understanding their expectations and use cases? So at that point, it, it takes a lot of one-on-one -on -one conversations to get started with it. I follow a, pretty much a, a product marketing mindset there of sitting down, understanding their use cases, understanding their expectations, how, how we're positioning the API, figuring out which of the API calls are actually generating value for them. So it's not the like the Salesforce model. It's not querying the customer record. It might be updating it. It might be logging that we interacted with the customer. It might be something like that. And understanding of the API calls we have, which ones are the valuable ones? Which ones are the important ones? And then prioritizing around those. And once you do that with a handful of customers, then sit down and figure out who are the customers or who are, sorry, more properly, who are the prospects that are just like this group? Who are their uh, competitors? Who can we go to and say, hey, you know what? Jason's company is doing this and they're blowing you out of the water. Here's how to improve what you're doing. Who are their comparators of who do they look like or who do they look at for, for leadership, for guidance? Who do they want to be when they grow up? 
and sort of crawling up that tree, up the stack to figure out here are the people that they look up to and going down that stack of who looks to them for guidance and leadership and just finding personas and, and use cases similar to them. So I think reeling this back into kind of the blog post that sparked the discussion, I think my favorite part of it, and it's in the title, right? This, the dangerous delay. And, and this is something I think is fairly applicable to a lot of different products, but it's certainly a thing with APIs, which is we see this kind of, you know, there's, there's little, a little dip, a little blip of activity, some more activity, and then something good happens. But that time span is, and your dig here is particularly interesting on like how big that delay can potentially be. Yeah, let me, let me walk through the, the the pattern there a little bit. So in the the dangerous delay, I found this pattern with with Twilio, with Octo, with with Clarify. That was the company I was at, and with a lot of the companies I consulted with. There, there's actually three kind of key periods of usage. One is that initial usage. It's that first time, first time exploration that happens with your API. Somebody says, hey, look, we found this API. What does it do? And that can come from a hackathon. That can come from a useful blog post, a guide. That can come from a meetup where somebody said, hey, I found this useful tool. Let me check it out. And that's just a developer sitting down and playing with it and saying, does it do what I expect? It's quick. It's, it's very concrete. It's very specific. The thing that scares most people after that is usage almost always goes to zero immediately after that because they weren't looking to integrate into anything. They were just playing with it to say, yeah, does this do the thing that I think it does? You know, it's like go to your, your favorite electronics store. You stop and you play with all the toys. You have no intention of buying it, but you play with it. Then there's some sort of delay. And I'll, I'll go into the delay in a second, but then there's, there's a second bump. And that second bump happens, and it's a little bit bigger than the first because it's usually driven by a, a requirement. There's a product manager that comes and says, hey, that thing we talked about six months ago, we need that now. That thing that we are worried about, that's reached the top of the priority queue. Get on it, please. Hopefully they say please. And so they go ahead and they, the developer starts building on it. The cool thing is that our usage is a little bit bigger than the first time because now they're actually playing with it, they're using it, they're they're testing it around. It probably takes a little bit longer because this isn't just like a little hack kind of thing. This is actually serious development. And then almost without exception, usage after that goes back to zero. And most people freak out at that point. They're like, what just happened? We had this customer, they were going to do stuff, where'd they go? Well, think of it from the developer's perspective for a second. They just finished their sprint. That's all it is. Calm down. Don't freak out. They just finished their sprint. Now there's going to be a lag between that, that development being done and that being in production. And there's nothing wrong with that. But we have to remember, we have to stop, take a deep breath, and remember that's what's happening behind the scenes. And then when it goes into production, hopefully that you know we're looking at a hockey stick. Now, the dangerous delay is that time between that first exploration and that integration step. Because... At that first exploration, it, your API was a cool toy. It might address something that's somewhere on the priority list, but it's nowhere near the top, so somebody isn't really thinking about it. And the integration point is when that item, that requirement, makes it to the top of the lab, that list. Now, if you are addressing a problem that is a real concrete, painful requirement, then that delay is going to be relatively short. If you're addressing something that isn't a, a big priority, it isn't that important, it's not that painful, then that delay is going to be longer. Or that delay is going to be infinite because you're not solving that big of a problem. Or maybe you screwed it up 
in that exploration stage and you irritated the developer, you frustrated them, you didn't deliver on the promise that you made, and then there's no delay, it's just infinite again. And so the dangerous, the reasons it's a dangerous delay is that you don't know if it's a delay or if it's a departure. And you don't know that until they come back. And that's scary. In the example I laid out in the blog post, that the dangerous delay was roughly nine months for, for the group I was working with. That's a terrifying delay. That's a long time to wait. Yeah, especially as a product manager and more and more people are transitioning into managing APIs. It's like if you're looking for, you know, I worked really hard to justify getting this API built. And what I have seen over the years quite a, a lot is, you know, I finally got this thing bought in. I'm promising these results it's going to deliver the, for the business. It launches and in one or two quarters pass and there's not a whole lot of results. And then, you know, next thing you know, you're having CFO discussions and things are getting uh, pulled off uh, follow-up projects. And I think there's a real learning opportunity in here for young API product managers that, you know, set the expectation this is going to take a little time to build. And it's part of the reason not to wait is get started now, learn, you know, some of these adoption, you know, bumps in the road and how to shorten up that delay timeline but more importantly, set the expectation it could take that long before we see anything come out of this. But the the dangerous flip the, is the flip side of that of, you know, when you're telling your, your higher level leadership, yeah, this will take a while. If it never materializes, you have a problem on your hands. Yeah, you're now the, the, the product manager with a product in the water for a year. <laughs> That's not a good place to be. Yeah. So the, the way I always look at it is, you know, with that nine month delay, that means the things you're doing in January don't show up until October. That's a long time. That That's like ulcer inducing kind of pain there because you don't know what's happening in between. If you looked at the world in 2020, the world changed a little bit between January and October. So, and so many of those things are, are you know, outside our control, outside our knowledge, there's no way we can possibly predict them. So when we're working with a nine month window, it's almost impossible to iterate. You cannot connect cause and effect. There's no way to do that between the, those two ends. So any way you can shorten that window ends up being really important. And so the place where I, I mentioned we had a nine-month delay starting off, after about two years, we were able to trim that down to five months. It took a lot of effort. It took a lot of strategy, but we were able to do that. And now that's within two quarters. Still not wonderful, but it's to the point where, okay, now we can start to plan. Now we can start to model things out. What were some of, I guess, the tactical highlights as to the things that you did to shorten up that timeline? And, and maybe, I guess, when you're looking at you know, these different consulting engagements and things, just stuff that you see that works. Yeah, so th it's really a two-pronged effort. Like I said before, when you go from the exploration to the integration stage, the thing that drives that integration stage is that requirement making it to the top of the list. So we need to think about how do we drive adoption? Well, it's easy. How do we make sure that the requirements we're addressing are moving towards the top of that list? So we can say, okay, we can address more important problems. We can put more emphasis on those existing problems to understand, oh, wait a minute, if this is costing us revenue, that's probably important. Let's figure out how to move that up in our end users, our developers' mindset to say, oh, yeah, this is a problem. Or probably less so developers, more product managers, the product owners to say, hey, look, if your customers are churning because of this, here's how by prioritizing this, you have less churn. 
Here's how you make more money at the end of the day. So that's the like the product manager story of what we're doing is valuable. Here, let me show you. That's really interesting, though, that, that you know, you're, you're highlighting that sometimes just the way that you're communicating your value can actually drive faster action from customers. Oh, absolutely. If, if you can attach your value to them making more money, that goes a long way. And the cool thing is that then the product owners go, oh, wait a minute. If my churn goes down when I integrate you, cool, I can track that. I can have a, a tangible impact on my product adoption, on the cash flow, on whatever. And I also say this among the startups I work with. I, I have a lot of these little quippy one-liners, but cash flow settles most arguments. I'm sorry, I'm so invested in this idea of being able to measure the impact of your product to be able to show the people buying your product that it's working. What tool set or measurement set do you recommend product owners build into their products from the get-go to help those product owners who buy their tools show return on investment? Well, that, that ends up being more on the end user side of things. So it's understanding how are their customers churning what are their customers running into? So however they're tracking churn, however they're tracking adoption on their end, on our end, on the API owner's end, we need to have a, a very close, intimate relationship with our, our top customers to understand here's what's freaking them out. I ask every company I work with, you know, what's keeping you up at night? What's stressing you out? And if we're addressing those problems, then we can go really far with those things. So we're not asking our customers, the product owners on our customer side, we're not asking them to adopt a new tool set or integrate differently. We're saying, why are you losing customers? What's preventing your customers from converting? Okay, cool. You have these five problems. Maybe we can't tackle number one, but we can hit two, three, and four. How valuable is that to you? Let's get, let's get shipping on that. Let's help these things move up your requirement list. So you know, your end of year bonus is that much bigger as a result. Mm -hmm. Which, by the way, I, I mean, I said it before, and I, I think um, hearing you really, you know, elaborate, I feel even stronger about it is like, some of this is just old school product management that applies to, you know, selling damn near anything, right? And I feel like sometimes folks look at APIs and go, oh, this is this weird developer-y thing, you know, it, it's all super technical. And it's like when you boil it down, just going and talking to your customers about how are you helping solve their problems and save them money or make them more money is actually what works <laughs> because caught up in all the technical stuff doesn't hurt in terms of improving your developer experience. But if what you're doing isn't clear, it doesn't matter, right? I mean, I've said it a bunch on the show here. I, you and I are the same in having these silly quippy one-liners is like, I always say like developers try business buys and it's like developers will try things out, but at the end of the day, they're not who usually signs the check. And if you don't have that concrete punch it through this is what this thing does and why you need it then the person that signs the check might take their time right <laughs> so my recap of some of this is like you're saying you know really know your customer be customer centric in your thinking and make sure you're solving real problems along with the rest of the thread here like a little old school product management goes a long way even though it's a weird format to to apply it to that's the magic of becoming an api product manager but don't get too fancy I love it. Really great to catch up with you, Keith. Definitely need to come out to your uh, farm and drink some beer and plant a tree. So we need to line that up soon. But <laughs> thanks so much for doing this. And Anna, thanks again for uh, helping out co-hosting. Thanks for listening. If you have a question you want to ask, 
Look in the description of whichever platform you're viewing or listening on, and there should be a link there so you can go submit a question, and we'll do our best to find out the right answer for you.